Are you a happy person? How would you answer that question today? If you were on a job interview and they were to ask you the question, are you a happy person? What would you say? Or maybe you were on TV and they stuck a mic in your face and said, tell us, are you a happy person? What would you say and why would you answer the way that you would answer? This question was asked of the pop star Madonna. This is what she said in response. I'm a very tormented person. I have a lot of demons I'm wrestling with. But I want to be happy. I have moments of happiness. I can't say I'm never happy. I'm working towards knowing myself. And I'm assuming that will bring me happiness. I appreciate Madonna and her willingness to be vulnerable in this moment and to admit probably what many people would be terrified to admit, that they struggle with this issue of happiness. They wrestle with demons, sometimes feeling tormented. But here she makes the fatal mistake I think that so many people make, and that is looking for happiness or joy within, either in who we are or who we're becoming or the things that we do. And I think it's a very common mistake that people make. Our culture tells us to look within. There you'll find happiness. Just come to peace with yourself or, or set out to accomplish Big things, huge things. And in your success, you can relish happiness. But it always seems so elusive, doesn't it? Jesus is going to tell us in the passage we look at today that happiness is not found in anything that we can do, but rather it's found outside of us. More particularly, it's found in God the Father and his pursuit of people like you and me. It's interesting, the great reformer John Calvin once said, all men seek happiness. Scarcely, I'm sorry, while all men seek happiness, scarcely one in a hundred looks for it from God. I want us to be among those one in 100 that search for it in God. Jesus sets before us a relentlessly God-centered view of reality, and he calls us to be honest with ourselves and to take him at his word. And so we're going to do so today. And we're going to call our study A Real Cause for Deep Joy. And if you are perhaps exploring the Christian faith, one of the things that you're going to see that's unique about what Jesus has to offer, that, that no one else can even come up with, is the source of joy and happiness, lasting deep joy and happiness. And you're going to be challenged, like all of us are challenged, to humble yourselves and to receive it as a gift that Jesus himself gives. If you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to be reminded of the source of your joy. Not just reminded of it, but to be encouraged to rejoice in it, to revel in it, to have it define your life. And you're going to be reminded once again how God and his sovereign grace has come to you and opened the eyes of your heart that you may know him and know him better. And so we're going to look at this passage. And before we dive into it, I want us to just take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to give us what we need, which is his spirit to understand this passage. So let's pray together. Lord, as we've heard how Madonna answered that question, some of us perhaps can resonate with exactly what she said. Happiness seems elusive. Joy 
seems momentary. And if it is the case that we're looking for it in all the wrong places, would you open our eyes this day to hear what Jesus has to say, to see what it is that he has to offer, and to see how he redirects our gaze? Be with us in this moment and give us your spirit. Help us to concentrate in a world saturated by sound bites and, and bumper stickers. Help us to, to focus and give sustained attention to what Jesus has to say in this passage. And meet us and change us, we pray in his name. Amen. So Luke chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 17 through 24. And this is how it starts out. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. So Jesus has just sent out 70 uh, disciples of his with authority to go into the towns before him. He's on his final march to Jerusalem, where he's going to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sin, where he will be raised three days later and crowned with glory and honor from the Father. And so he sends these disciples ahead of them and gives them authority to speak in his name to heal in his name, to proclaim the very same gospel message that Jesus himself has been proclaiming. And so now they return to Jesus with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. Now, I know in hearing this, some people we lose right away because they're thinking we just stepped right into the world of make-believe. Demons, really? Aren't we a bit more sophisticated than that? I think Jesus would tell us, if you want to take me seriously, you have to take seriously the way the world is as I describe it to you. It's interesting. You would probably think that in all of scriptures, there would be accounts of demon possessions all over the place because, right, the primitive people, and they believe in that kind of thing, right? But if we were to look at scripture, we find out it's actually a very rare thing. There are maybe two occasions in the entire Old Testament that could be described as demon possession. And past the life of Jesus and the life of the early church, there are two examples of it. But right around the life of Jesus and in the ministry of Jesus, you see an intensification of evil manifesting itself in opposition to Jesus. And so we see it over and over again. When you read through the Gospels, we've seen it already in the Gospel of Luke. We read through the other Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. They're not shy about highlighting to us this intensification of evil. So why do they do that? Wouldn't it be just easier for people to accept their message if they were to ignore this? And I think that the reason they don't ignore it is because Jesus himself didn't ignore it. Jesus is going to ask us to sophisticate our understanding of ourselves and of God and even of the spiritual realm. And he would say it would be a deep mistake to neglect the issue of spiritual, real evil. The evil in this world, he would have us know, is not just the sum total of all human actions. And we can look at the news, we can see some horrible things going on, and humans are responsible for that. But we're taught from Jesus to see behind so much of what's going on in this world are entities which are seeking to inspire. And these entities, malevolent as they are, usually work through the power of hate and the power of lies. And sometimes, they work in the power of possessing a human personality. And that's what happens here. So the 72 return, and they say to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. They went out just like Jesus went out, and they encountered these intensifications of evil. And in speaking in Jesus' name, 
They had power over this evil. And Jesus responded to them, verse 18. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, there's a couple questions that we could raise here. The first question is, is this. When did Jesus see Satan fall like lightning? Now, some people say he's talking about the original fall of Satan, this angelic being from his lofty position in heaven. The book of Revelation says this. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Here we're given a a picture of, of what happened at a moment in time when this angel, now known as the deceiver or the Satan, was thrown down out of God's presence. And there was an angelic host that went with him. that joined him in that rebellion. So it might be the original point that Jesus was referring to. But a lot of scholars believe that what Jesus is speaking about is what just happened as he sent them out to preach in his name. That is the current fall of Satan from the power that he had. Jesus came, the scriptures tell us, to destroy the works of the devil. And one of the ways that those works are destroyed is through the preaching of his gospel. The power of his name, as we just sung, the name above all names, being spoken and having that kind of influence over evil and the suppression of it and in the quenching of it. And so as these disciples went out preaching about Jesus, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall from this powerful position of boasting as Lord of this world. I saw him fall. And so here's a question for us. What does this mean for us living now in the 21st century? Well, we need to take Jesus at his word. I think probably most of us would agree that he has a lot more spiritual insight than all of us put together. And so if he tells us that there is a spiritual realm, then it's populated with malevolent creatures like this deceiver, then we ought to take him at his word as well. In fact, one of his disciples, Peter, gave instructions to Christians living in the ancient Roman Empire. And this is what he said. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Here, the apostle of Jesus, one of his ambassadors, wanted early followers of Jesus to watch out. And it's not that there's a demon behind every bush, but it's certainly the case that there are demons that affect this world. And here he says the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. And he says, resist him. Firm in your faith. What kind of faith? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're also told this in the book of Revelation. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So here we're told that these early believers conquered. How? By the blood of the lamb. They they conquered through the sacrifice that Jesus gave. But they also conquered by the, what's called the word of their testimony. The ability that they had to give testimony to the reality of God at work in their lives in Jesus Christ. And so we have that same power this day. 
Let's jump back in at verse 20 of Luke chapter 10. Jesus is going to redirect their gaze. Remember, they came back rejoicing that the spirits were subject to them. This is what Jesus said. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, I want you to think for me, with me for a moment. What does it look like when someone's rejoicing? They're probably in an excited state, right? Think about when you rejoice when Aggie football or Clemson football or whatever school you follow scores a touchdown, and you're excited and you're thrilled with what's going on. Maybe that's some of the excitement they had. Jesus isn't necessarily saying that that's bad or irrelevant, but what he's wanting to do is redirect their gaze to something that is far, far more worth celebrating and rejoicing in. And that is the fact that their names are written in heaven. It's almost like Jesus and hearing them talk about these stories of how these demonic forces were subject to them because they talked about Jesus. Jesus says to them, that's nothing. You want to know what you really ought to rejoice in? The fact that your names are written in heaven. So the question arises, how does our name get written in the book of life in heaven? Wouldn't it be great to know that our names are written in that book of life? But how do we know? Now, if you were to ask probably the average person on the street about how to get to heaven, how to find salvation, almost everyone would say, you've got to do good. You've got to be a good person. I think I've shared this quote from you from Mike Bloomberg before. He was the former presidential candidate, and he uh, had an interview back in 2014, and the headline read, I have earned my place in heaven. And so, of course, I had to check out the article and see what he said about this. And this is what he said. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. That's just a curious statement, isn't it? The article details about how he has committed $50 million to a cause that he believed in. And he thought because he has done this and other good things he's done with his money, that God owes him a place in heaven. And so if this is what you heard from him, how would you describe the good news according to Mike Bloomberg? Well, if you're rich enough, you can buy your place in heaven, right? And you could be there with the other rich and pretentious and arrogant people who think that they can do that, right? That's the good news according to Mike Bloomberg. But that's not at all how one's name is written in the book of life. Someone has said this. Religion is spelled D-O, do. You got to do more, you got to be more. You got to stack up your righteous acts and hopefully that will outweigh your unrighteous acts. You got to do more, you got to be more. But this person said Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. And that's because Jesus has done everything that we need to receive salvation. It's simply offered to us and we, we believe in him. We trust ourselves to him. But someone still says, but how do we know? There's not a place in the Bible that you can look and see if your name is written there. There's not a way that we can, we can pry into this book of life. So how do we know? My friends, we can know simply by trusting in Jesus. He's the one who told us about the great love of God and how God sent him into this world, that people believe in him 
receive eternal life. They would not perish. And so the way we can know that our names are written in the book of life is simply by receiving from Jesus the grace and forgiveness that we need to be able to enter into the presence of God. And so the disciples came back rejoicing. Jesus redirects their gaze to something really worth rejoicing about. And now Luke is going to tell us about how Jesus went on rejoicing. Verse 21, it says, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Now, it seems like maybe this scene is fast-forwarding just a little bit, but not too far in the future. Jesus had this conversation with his disciples. Perhaps they're on their way. And as Jesus thinks about what they've said and what he's proclaimed to them, he begins to rejoice. And it says here he rejoices in the Holy Spirit, the personal presence of God. And Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And here, here's the content of what Jesus is rejoicing in. He's thinking about his life. He's thinking about his ministry. He's thinking about the people who receive what he has to say and perhaps thinking about those who don't. And he's delighting in the fact that God in his wisdom hides the beauty of Jesus and what he has to offer from those who declare themselves to be wise and understanding. And he reveals them to a certain category of people. Here he calls them little children, thinking in particular of those people who respond to his message. Now, in his day, the people who were wise and had understanding were the religious leaders. And they wanted nothing to do with Jesus by and large. In fact, they won at the trial of Jesus, they said, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, it's interesting that they understood that Jesus had come to reign, but they didn't want anything to do with it. And so we're told in a very real way, behind the scenes, what Jesus rejoices in is for those people who have no space for, them, for, for him in his life, that God actually conceals the good news from him or from her. I'm reminded of this quote by Professor Thomas Nagel. I've shared it with you before. He's a professor of law and philosophy at New York. And he came out and he shocked the world when he said this, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And this is a very real cry of the human heart. When the good news of Jesus comes, it demands a response. It demands a response of trust. And if we don't have that trust to give, then the response is rejection. We don't want this man to rule over us. And so Jesus in an interesting sort of way, is delighting in the fact that God in his grace reveals them this truth about Jesus to what he called little children. Now, the Apostle Paul, who, as you know, was one time a persecutor of the Jesus movement and the people of Jesus, later encountered Jesus and, and trust in him. He would write to believers living in this place called Corinth these words. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here the Apostle Paul boasts of the gospel of Jesus. It is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God to save those who simply trust in the Lord Jesus. That's a big mouthful from Paul. Peter put it much more succinctly. He said this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this really is what Jesus is rejoicing in. And then he says something else. Verse 22 in chapter 10. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is an astounding claim made by Jesus. No one knows the Father, the creator of the universe, except for Jesus, his Son, And no one knows the Son except those whom the Father is pleased to reveal him. And Jesus says he can choose to reveal the Father to people like you and me. This is an astounding claim. It's an audacious claim. The question we have to ask is, is it true? Jesus, in another place, said this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now, if I were to say something like this, this would be a crazy thing to come out of my lips. You should commit me to the insane asylum. But Jesus here says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And someone says, you see, this is why I don't like Christianity. You Christians think you're the only ones who get to go to heaven. I believe that anyone who is good and sincere, will make it. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that. None of us likes people who are arrogant and and think they're the center of everything. But let me just say this. Jesus himself is the one who said, no one comes to the Father except through him. So this isn't the case of a pastor being arrogant or, or Christians being arrogant as if somehow we are great. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through him. So the question we need to ask is, is Jesus telling the truth? Or is he deceived? Or is he lying? You see, someone who has an objection like this, even though it's understandable, still has a level of exclusion. Did you see it? When the objection is made that says, I believe anyone, no matter what they believe, as long as they're sincere and good, can enter heaven, what's the standard? Sincerity and goodness. And for those of us who haven't been good... (laughs) our entire life and haven't been sincere in what we believe, what hope is there? And so this person making an objection is exclusive in their view of who gets to have salvation. And Jesus is too. But Jesus is is much more generous in his exclusivity because he says, whoever comes to me, the Father will never cast out. So now Jesus turns to his disciples and he wants to say something to them alone, apart from the crowds. 
We're told in verse 23, then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Really, Jesus? People like Moses, the great prophet, and David, the great king, and Solomon, the great king, and others like Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah, they all long to see what we're seeing. Jesus is like, yes. They wanted to hear what you get to hear. And so blessed are you in hearing this. Now, the Apostle John was one of those people that Jesus was speaking to right there in that moment. And he would later later write a letter talking about what they witnessed with Jesus. And he said, there's actually one thing that can increase the joy beyond what Jesus gave them at that moment. He said this, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. That is the person of Jesus. We saw him and we heard from him. We proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The Apostle John says, basically, the one thing that could add to the joy that Jesus has already given to us is if you would come along with us. If you too would believe in the Son of God. If you would receive salvation from him. You too can have joy and our joy will then be complete. And so let's ask a question. Why does Luke record this episode in the life of Jesus. He could have easily left this out. What does he want us to see? Now, if I could summarize it for us in a succinct way, I think it would be something like this. Deep, lasting joy is not found in what you do or can do, but in what has been done for you. You can't do enough. You can't be enough to have a deep, lasting, sustaining joy. You can't look inside yourself deep enough to find it. It's not there but rather it comes as a gift from Jesus who has done everything necessary to bring people like you and me into his kingdom. Or to put it slightly differently, deep, lasting joy is not something we achieve, but rather we receive. And so two points of application as we wind our study down. First one is this, humble yourself and become like a child. If Jesus says that the Father's will is to reveal the Son to little children. Then we ought to become like little children. In fact, there's another occasion when the disciples were having this boasting contest with one another, and Jesus said, just a minute, guys. He pulled a child in the midst of them and said this to them. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus calls us to humble ourselves like a a young child, a child who is trusting of his father. I remember a time when when my kids were really young and I was asking them about how how much they trusted their their father. And I don't even know if they remember this, but I asked them this question. I'm like, what if we went outside and I set you up on the roof? And I said, here, jump to me. Would you do it? And they said, yes, which was an insane question response because I wouldn't want them to do that but but they trusted that I would catch them that they wouldn't get hurt and Jesus calls us to a, a similar childlike trust in the father who delights in revealing the son to people like them and so sometimes people come up with with really good intellectual objections and 
I wonder if sometimes people hide behind those objections and they can never actually grasp the simple truth of Jesus. The late Anglican minister, John Stott, had this encouraging word of advice. He said, if you find it hard to believe in God, I strongly advise you to begin your search not with philosophical questions, but with Jesus of Nazareth. My friends, that is a great piece of advice. I was a philosophy major, and I wanted to study the the best wisdom that humankind had. I wanted to see the, the best objections against the truth of Christianity. But let me tell you, it doesn't get any more simple than this. If you want to know if God exists, and we can walk through a lot of different arguments and pieces of evidence, but that's a waste of time in many ways. Let's go straight to Jesus. He claimed to be the revelation of God. He came to be, claimed to be God in the flesh, coming to people like you and to me. And so I think that we should keep that in mind as we interact with people, to steer them towards Jesus. Now, there was this famous a French mathematician and philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal. We have a young man in our uh, audience here who has been named after him. Uh, This Blaise Pascal uh, spent the first 31 years of his life wanting nothing to do with God. He didn't want anything to do with Jesus. But then he had this powerful encounter with the truth of who Jesus is. And he would write this down on a piece of paper. And no one else knew about what he had written down until after he had died. He actually had sewn this in the pocket of his coat jacket. And this is what we read. Year of Grace, 1654, Monday, November 23rd, from about half past 10 at night to about half an hour after midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Certainty. Heartfelt joy. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. Oh, I don't know about you, but I wish we had a little bit more about the context and what actually happened there. But you can see how he's writing here. It's almost like he's having words Difficulty finding the words to to write down his experience. But at the heart of it are these words, joy, 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 tears of joy. I was thinking about this the other day when I was watching a video of a son who had uh, this desire to surprise his father with a car. And so his son had been successful and he bought his father a Maserati and and he wanted to reveal this to his father. So he had his father come out, and uh, in the driveway on the back of the car was this present. And he opened it up, and it was this model Maserati. And his father loved it and rejoiced over it. And then right behind him in the driveway, the car honked, and he turned around, and there was the real Maserati with a big bow on it. And, And his father just collapsed in tears of joy. And that'd be pretty cool to receive a gift like that. No doubt, right? But Jesus, I think, would say, that's nothing. If you want to know what is truly amazing, is that the creator of the universe would receive someone like you into his gracious kingdom. That he would give his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to make atonement for the sins that you and I have committed so that our slates might be wiped clean. 
and filled with the beauty and righteousness of Jesus. Jesus says, that is really what should bring you tears of joy. My friends, do you know that? Do you know this deep joy that Jesus talks about? It is theirs for, it is there for the taking. The second point of application, just real quickly here. Anchor your joy deeply in Jesus. Now, just like Madonna was tempted to root her joy, her happiness inside her or somewhere else than the living God, so you and I are, are tempted all the time to look at places. We think, yeah, if I could have a Maserati, then I would truly be happy. Or if I could get married, I would truly be happy. Or if I could leave my spouse, I would be truly happy. Or if I could retire early, I would be truly happy. And happiness is never found in those places. Randy Alcorn in his book, Happiness, said, we're free to search for happiness where it can't be found. What we're not free to do is reinvent God, the universe, or ourselves, so that what isn't from God will bring us happiness. God will let us look for joy in all these places where it can't be found. And maybe you've been looking. Maybe you've been searching. Could it be the case that Jesus actually knows what he's talking about? And he says the place to look for it is in this gracious relationship with his father. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Look for yourself and you will find loneliness and despair. But look for Christ and you will find him and everything else. My friends, that is good news. So may you find in Christ a real cause for deep joy that transcends anything and everything that this world has to offer.